All right, good morning, guys. Oh, let's try that again. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. Uh, thank you for joining me this morning as we wrap up our study in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I hope it has been an incredible blessing to you. We are looking at the last verse in the chapter this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. And uh, let's go over to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 962, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Thank you for joining us over the last seven weeks as we have been unpacking this um, incredible chapter. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. It has definitely been an encouragement to me, just recentering myself and sitting um, in the beautiful truth of the resurrection of Christ and all that the all the blessings that opens up to me. Um, I do want to let you know that starting next week, we are starting a new sermon series. We're going to spend four weeks um, digging into what the Word has to say about ecclesiology. Uh, ecclesiology is one of those big theological $10 words. It just means how a church is organized and run. Uh, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the role of the elder, also known as a pastor, um, and we're going to be talking about um, what the Bible has to say about elders and pastors. And I know some of you are like, great, I get to check out for the next four weeks. Um, I really hope that's not the case. I, I think you really should engage, and I'll give you a couple good, very good reasons. First of all, it is important for you, follower of Christ, to understand what the Bible has to say uh, about how a church should be run right? Because the Bible's not silent about this. What, what should the structure of a local New Testament church look like, and who should be um, kind of running the show? Who, who should be the under-shepherds? Who should be the pastors, and what does that look like? So you really should be tuned in so that you have a better sense of how it should be done and who should be doing it. Secondly, um, we're going to spend this month, these four weeks, and I'm going to call the body to prayer, because God is going to call some of you to be elders and pastors at Trailhead Church. God is going to call some of you to plant churches, be elders and pastors in other locations. God's going to call some of you to be full-time gospel workers, people that are living out the vocation of the gospel like we all should do, but potentially doing it full-time in a way that you gain your living from it. Um, I don't know what God's going to call, but I, I trust that, that uh, God's going to be working in our community and in our hearts um, to call those that need to be called into uh, these specific roles. Um, and then finally, bottom line is when we're talking about church leadership, what we're talking about is Christian maturity. That's the bottom line. Uh, the people that are called to lead in the church are the people who are the lead disciplers of the church, are the under-shepherds of Christ, and, and they um, have grown to a place of maturity in their Christian walk that their lives should be imitated. And so we're talking about Christian maturity, which is honestly relevant to every single person here. Uh, what does it look like to be a godly man? What does it look like to be a godly woman? What does it look to be like to be a, a godly follower of Christ? And so join us over the next four weeks. Um, we'll be introducing that more next week, but I just want to let you know where we're going. All right, have you ever heard of someone being um, too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? You ever, you ever heard that phrase used of somebody? It's generally not a compliment. It's usually not like, oh my goodness, they're so godly. Now, it usually means um, that these are people that like to talk a lot about God. Maybe they like to talk a lot about the Bible. Maybe they like to be really religious and go to church and do a lot of things. 
um, but they're not interested in doing much outside of that to help anyone else or to do any good. Um, they're just kind of sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back, and, and they love talking about it in the meantime. Um, the bottom, bottom line is this. Those kind of folks, um, that's not the right description of them. There are people who aren't worth much. Let's be honest. <laughs> there are people uh, who, who love to talk about God, not do anything for God or to follow God or to put it in. You know, there are people that, that sound really, really religious and sound really, really spiritual, and, and honestly, um, you could lock them in a room by themselves and nobody would really miss their absence. Um, that is not because they are too heavenly minded. It is because they're not heavenly minded enough. There's a quote in your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The ones who did the most for this current world were the ones who thought the most about the next. That's where we're going this morning. And that's kind of Paul's point at the end of this glorious chapter about the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection with Him. Um, those who are most enamored with this beautiful truth are going to be the most relevant and most powerful force of love in this world today. So let's take a look at our verse. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, I'll ask you to follow along in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, this verse is what I call a hallmark verse. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is the kind of verse I would expect at a Hallmark store to see maybe it on a mug or, or, or stuck on the end of greeting cards to kind of make them spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, hey, thanks for coming to my gender reveal party. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? Um, sorry about your loss. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Uh, thanks for coming out to my bar mitzvah. Be steadfast and immovable, always. All right, so you get my point, all right? Um, the point is this, that, that this is one of those verses that it's really, really easy to read over. Like, because like, we tend to be moving quickly. And this is one of those verses that you can read, and, you, and you're kind of like, oh yeah, I get the general sense of what this means. And, and you move on, but you actually miss the depth of what's going on. And so I want us to slow down this morning and ask this verse some questions. And allow those questions to, to kind of settle in. So the first question I want to ask is, uh, what is the therefore, therefore? Um, one of the first things I was taught when I was learning to study my Bible was to ask that very simple question. Because the therefore is never there um, irrelevantly, uh, irrelevantly, right? It has a purpose. It is there for a purpose. It's connecting some critical ideas. And it's important as a reader for me to find out what those ideas are. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, in this case, it is Paul summing up the whole chapter of 15 into a single admonition at the end. He's looking back to verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and take a look back there. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Right? In verses 1 and 2, Paul starts the chapter by saying, all right, I'm going to talk about this glorious resurrection, but, but here's the point. I want you to stand fast in the gospel. I want you to hold fast to these truths. What specifically? Well, the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? In verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Right? And then He appeared to Cephas and the Twelve and, and to the Five Hundred, right? The, the, the historical reality of the death and the resurrection of Christ, right? Jesus died for your sins. That's what he says. He was your substitute. He was your hero. He, he took your place in judgment, dying the death you deserve to die. It was a substitutionary death, right? It was, a, it was, it was a, an act of a profound love that put Christ on that bloody cross. It was my sin that put him there. It was his love that kept him there. He, he died for my sins. He was buried, which is a, a kind of a, just a simple way of saying he actually died, right? They, they took his body down. They actually physically wrapped it, embalmed it. They did all that stuff, right? They, they put it in the tomb, and they closed it because the deal was done. But then on the third day, he rose from the dead. On the third day, the glorious victory of the resurrection, proving that, that his death for my sin actually paid the price of my sin. His heroic charge into my cosmic rebellion was, in fact, victorious. He defeated my greatest enemy. He silenced um, death. He paid the price of my guilt. And, uh, and in rising, gave me the opportunity to be covered in glory. He's saying, stand fast in this truth. Stand fast in this truth. Hold tightly to this truth, right? Verse, the very beginning of the verse. Well, at the end of, of the chapter... Um, Paul's also taking us to verses 50 and 53, right? Take a look at those verses. Starting at verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Hold fast, he says. Hold fast to the historical death and resurrection of Jesus. And hold fast to the future hope of your own resurrection in Jesus. Because Christ, our first fruits, was raised. We too shall be raised. We will be raised into uh, the glorious kingdom in which the abuse of power will be silenced, death itself will die, and the glory of Christ um, will be displayed, right? So Paul is saying, therefore, therefore. So let me just illustrate what I mean, right? He's saying, therefore, right? Look back to the death and resurrection of Christ, right? So, so look back in time to the historical reality the theological reality that Jesus came as your Savior to die in your place and rose again. Look back and be rooted in that, but also look forward to your own resurrection, right? Look forward to, to the fact that you are following Christ, your first fruits. Look back 
to his death and resurrection. Look forward to your own, that you will be raised in glory. You will be transformed into the very image of Christ, and you will, you will be able to abide and live and thrive in the kingdom of God in which there is the flourishing of life. Look back, look forward, and realize, therefore, that you live here in between the two advents, in between the two comings. You live right now in the overlap of the ages. The age of Adam is passing away. It's already been defeated. Its greatest enemy has already been silenced. The kingdom of Christ is breaking in. Its glorious light is dawning in the kingdom of God, the very people of God, and it will be firmly established. You live right here between the two kingdoms, right here between the two advents. Therefore, he says, Therefore, considering where you are in redemptive history, he says, my beloved brethren, my family, my spiritual children, even though brethren is a, a, a gender specific in, in Greek usage, it was more like guys. It was gender neutral. It was used for people of affection, right? He's saying my spiritual family, my, my spiritual children, therefore be steadfast and immovable. Be steadfast and immovable. Because of where you are in the incredible story of God's redemptive plan, be steadfast and be immovable. So let's ask the question, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be steadfast and immovable? These are words that you use to describe a building, not people, right? It makes sense. If you're building something, you want it to be steadfast and immovable. What in the world does it mean that, that we are to be steadfast and immovable? What, what, what exactly is supposed to be steadfast and immovable? Surely he's not talking about be steadfast and immovable in every possible way. That would make us both a nuisance and a danger to ourselves and to others, right? It would make us hard-headed and hard-hearted. Uh, it isn't telling us to be, to be steadfast and immovable, unwilling to change. He isn't giving us, on the other hand, just a vague encouragement to be strong. He's not just saying, hey, you guys, be strong. He's saying, therefore, considering where you are in the overlap of the ages, where you are in redemptive history, be steadfast and immovable. See, he's telling us to do what he's already told us to do. He's telling us to do the very thing he told us to do at the opening of the chapter. Stand in the faith. Hold fast the good news of the gospel. Be steadfast and immovable in this. Be steadfast and immovable. That Jesus did what he said he did and that he was who he said he was. Be immovable in your hope. That his resurrection is the assurance of your own. Be so rooted in the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done that you are like a building with a solid foundation. Don't let the buffeting winds of, of current cultural convictions shake your foundation. Be strongly rooted, stand fast, steadfast, and immovable in your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and in your hope of your own future resurrection and transformation. Be steadfast and immovable. Now, it's interesting what he's saying here. I don't think he's just saying be steadfast and immovable in these truths as abstract intellectual things to be held to that we will simply not bend on. 
I think he's, he's saying, don't just respond to the what, respond to the why. Don't just respond to the what of who Jesus was and what he did. Respond to the why he did it, right? Jesus died and he rose again. That's a historical truth and a profoundly theological uh, truth that, that gives comfort to my soul. But even greater comfort is why he did it. Why did he die and rise again? It isn't just that these things happened. They happened because God loves me. And God loves you. John 3.16, one of the most, most commonly quoted verses in the Bible, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world. For God so loved Steve. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. That whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For the Son didn't come into the world to condemn Steve, but so that through the work of Christ, Steve might have eternal life. Love. See, God's love. God's love. God's love motivated the actions and the behaviors. God's love is what moved the hand of God. God's love is what kept Christ on that cross while he was suffering the death I deserved. It is Christ's love that was proclaimed and made clear in the resurrection of Christ that covers me with the glory of his righteousness and dignity. God's love. And what God's love does, y'all, is God's love provokes us to respond, as all love does. God's love provokes my heart to respond in love. God's actions may provoke me to action, but more deeply what I need is for God's love to provoke me to love, right? I need God's love to undo my pride. I need God's love to awaken within me a deep gratitude. I, I need God's love to, to build and strengthen my faith. Because what this allows me to do is move into the second part of the verse, not performing, but responding. I'm responding to the love of God, not performing for God, right? Because he moves on and he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, this love of God is both the motivation and the power we need to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. If you're not trying to do this, from a response to God's love, if you're trying to do it in performance to earn God's love or to impress God or to make yourself worthy of God's love, you will simply not be able to do this. Because what's being asked of us here is physically and emotionally and spiritually impossible outside of the empowering of the Spirit that comes through a simple response to God's love. I mean, let's take a close look, you guys. This word abound, what does that mean? Let's ask our questions, right? What in the world does abound mean? What does it mean to abound in the work of the Lord? It's a really weird thing to say, right? If your boss were to come up to you at work and lay his hand on your shoulder and say, hey man, I really hope you're abounding in the work of the office today. Would you have any idea what he was talking about? Like literally, would you have any idea what he was talking about? Like what comes to my mind is that I'm supposed to be like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh, right? With a, I'm just bouncing all over the place and I've got hoop, super hyper energy. And, and is, that, is that the description? We're supposed to be cheerleaders for Jesus? We're, we're supposed to be bouncing off the walls? Is that what it means? And, and, and how is that abounding in the work of the Lord? All right, so Tigger's really not that far off, to tell you the truth. Um, the word abound literally means to overflow to be abundant, to the point of being excessive, superfluous. 
It means abounding. It means overflowing. It means, it means, it means there's an abundance that is excessive, like beyond not only expectations, but what is normal. It abound, right? If I were in my 20s, I might say it's being extra, right? But I'm not, so I won't say that, right? It means being over the top, extravagant, to be extravagantly generous, unexplainably generous, abounding, over-the-top excessive. What are we supposed to be excessive in? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always excessively generous, excessively over-the-top in the work of the Lord. So let's ask, what is the work of the Lord? What, what are we supposed to be abounding in? What are we supposed to be overly excessive in the work of the Lord? How did the Lord work? Well, He sent Jesus to be on mission. To go to a cross and die and rise again. If that's not over the top, I don't know what is. That's excessive, excessively generous, excessively abundantly over the top, right? He loved, so he gave. For God so loved that he gave. He so, I mean, how much did he love? <laughs> how much did he give? Abundantly, excessively, over the top, superfluously. For God so loved, he gave. For God so loved, he worked. And because we are loved, we love, right? Scripture tells us, I love him because he first loved me, right? It is his love that awakens within me a responding love. It is his love that awakens within me an ability to love. And because, because I've been awakened by this love to love, I give. Because I have been awakened by his love to love, I work. In the same mission of love. In the, in, the, in the same way to see people far from God brought near, people that are outside of the blessing of God, to receive the blessing of God, to make sure that those who are in the blessing of God are experiencing the full blessing of God. I am abounding in the work of the Lord, which is to draw people to God, to bring them through the forgiveness that is available in Christ into the very glory of the presence of God, that they might become like Christ. They might be undone by God's love and freed into the love of God. We are to abound in the work of the Lord. It's really popular these days to take sides. It's really, really popular today to, 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 to take things that, that often should be held in tension and turn them into competing values, right? Is the work of the Lord social justice? Addressing social inconsistencies and ills that advantage some and disadvantage others, that, that cause some people pain while it privileges others and, and, and causes them to avoid pain, is, is the work of the Lord to, to address social justice, or is the work of the Lord to manifest itself in evangelism? Seeing people who are far from God brought near, seeing people who don't believe the gospel come to faith in Christ, is it one or the other? Is the work of the Lord uh, worship? where we come together and we sing and we praise and, 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 and we are undone by the glorious presence of God or is the work of the Lord's service? 
where we go out and, and, and we serve our neighbors and we know our communities and we know our, 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 our people's needs and we're trying to meet them. Is the work of the Lord personal Bible study, prayer, and growth and personal holiness? Or is the work of the Lord being in community, knowing and being known, partying with others who like to party in the name of the Lord? See, the answer to all of these questions is yes. The answer is yes. The work of the Lord isn't one or the other. It is one and the other. Because the work of the Lord is the manifestation of love in the transformative work of the redemptive process of Christ. It is love working its way out. Can, can I love my unbelieving friend without sharing the gospel with them? No. Can I love my neighbor who is suffering an injustice from society and not speak up for them when I have a voice to do so? No. Can I, can I love Jesus but ignore his word and not spend time growing to become like him? No. Can I, can I love Jesus but ignore his church, the gathering of his people, the people that are called his very body, his bride? No. Abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is loving your neighbor, right? It's the first and central commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commands rest all the law and the prophets. Everything else is summed up in this. This is the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord builds fences around things that need to be protected. It builds fences around the death and resurrection of Christ. This, on this, I am immovable. On this, I am steadfast. The historical and theo theological reality of the work of Christ. The work of the Lord tears down fences when they are designed to exclude and to privilege, to cause some people harm and other people benefit. Abound in the work of the Lord. Be extravagant in the work of the Lord. Be over the top in the work of the Lord. Abound in being loved and in loving be so steadfast and immovable in God's love for you that you are radically, extravagantly, stupidly generous with others. He's saying, be so rooted in God's love that you are super loving. Be so rooted in God's grace that you are super gracious. Be so rooted in God's truth that you are super hopeful. Be so rooted in God's generosity that you are ridiculously generous. Abound in the work of the Lord. Now, I don't want to miss the little word always. That's a fun little word. little adverb that, that comes on the front of abound, which itself is, is an over-the-top word, and it just makes it even that much more over-the-top. Always abound. When? How often? Always. Always. See, we tend to be generous when we feel like we have more than we need. We tend to be generous with people when we feel like we have more margin or more time, when, when, when it's like, okay, yeah, now, now I've got enough reserve, now I've got, right? We tend to be generous with our money when we feel like we have more than we need. When I, okay, I'm at the end of the month, and, and I actually have a little bit of money left at the end of the month instead of a little bit of month at the end of my money. And, and okay, I can, I can share a little bit of that, right? And, and we feel really generous when we share out of the excess reserve. But we also tend to become self-protective and selfish when we feel like we have less than we want. 
When I feel like I have less time than I want, less money than I want, less, less prestige when I want, I don't give praise, I, I don't give attention, I don't give myself, I don't give my money. Always, always abound. When things are going great, abound. Be over the top, excessive. When things are going poorly, always abound. Be over the top, excessive. When you are in great joy, man, always abound. Be over the top, excessive. When you are in great sorrow, always abound. Excessive. Love. Love freely. Love recklessly. Love as if you're actually going to be resurrected. Love as if this stuff is actually true. Love as if this age is dying and this age is breaking in. Love as if, as, if, as if there are some things that will carry over into the eternal kingdom of Christ, even while there are other things that will just burn because of their temporary nature. Let the truth of the gospel so pervade your life, so infiltrate your thinking that it affects everything you do every time you do it. All the things, all the time. Y'all, think about this. This is your present reality, remember? What Christ did, what Christ will do, what He has won, and what I will Receive. The present reality is that I stand right here. And if I'll just see it, if I'll just wake up and see it, if I'll just live in the reality of it, if I will just believe it and walk in it, man, I have been infinitely blessed. Infinitely. Man, I am the first fruit of the harvest of God. Christ has been raised, my first fruits. I will be raised in the same harvest of the same kind of harvest. I will receive the blessings He's won. They're already mine. Every blessing that you could receive in Christ, you've already received in Christ. You haven't experienced them all yet, but they are all yours. They're not conditional. You might, it's not, I might get some and I might, they're yours. Now. It is only a matter of time before you walk in the fullness of them. Your greatest debt has been paid. Your greatest problem has been solved. And God's greatest blessing has already, already been given to you. Live like it. Live it out. Be so steadfast and immovable in this truth that it leads you into a superabundant life of bold, generous faith and love. Knowing that everything you do, every sacrifice you make, every pain you suffer on behalf of others, Every difficulty you enter into in order to help bear the burden of someone else, every time you, you give up some of your time, every time you give up some of your money, every time you give up one of your dreams that someone else's might become a reality, every time you love and you give, you are actually making an investment into the coming kingdom 
Look at the end of the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul ends the verse by reminding us what our steadfast and immovable faith already knows. Nothing done to honor the king will be wasted in the coming kingdom. No act done in his name. No act of service, no act of love, no sacrifice, no pain, discomfort, or suffering will go unnoticed, lost, ignored, or unrewarded. None of it is done in vain. That's why Jesus could say, man, you could give a cup of water to one of these little ones in my name and you won't lose your reward. No act is too small. And no act is too great. Your sacrifice will not be empty of meaning or empty of reward. The difficulty you push yourself through in order to love because Giving requires love, but giving hurts, which requires us to, forces us to, it demands our hearts go back to selfishness and self-protection. It is love that keeps pushing us out. It is our selfishness that keeps pushing us back. And it is in this process of drinking deeply of God's grace, growing in the generosity of that grace, and then pushing into the growth of love that pushes us back into our experience of grace. Listen, everything you do in this age for the glory of your risen Savior is an investment in the age to come. There's a quote in your bulletins from Jim Elliott. He wrote this in his personal diary. First time I read it, it wrecked me. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, Jim Elliott had no idea what was coming for him. He knew he, knew he was being called by God into ministry, and, and he had a passion for reaching unreached people groups with the gospel, going where the gospel hadn't been before. A, a young godly woman named Elizabeth came and partnered herself with him, and they were married, and, and, and they, they just felt like God was calling them to this, to this little tribe of Indians, the Alka Indians in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott and, and, and a handful of others made contact with his Indians and, and built relationships with them, gave them gifts and received gifts and, and were actually developing the ability to exchange and interact with their culture and, and be accepted not as enemies and foreigners, but, but something went wrong. And one day as they were approaching, um, they were attacked. And Jim Elliott died with a spear through his heart in the middle of a stream. Was that a waste? See, some of us look at that and we think, man, he could have lived a long, fruitful life if he had just gone into finance. He could have lived a long and fruitful life if, if he had just used all of that, that entrepreneurial energy to, to build a kingdom, to sell something. I'm not belittling other vocational choices. God calls us. And we need to follow God's call. And God calls some of us to go to the Alk Indians, and God calls some of us to go to the marketplace. But what God calls all of us to do is always abound 
in the work of the Lord in whatever field he calls us to live. Listen to me. There's going to come a day, and you're going to see it, when Jim Elliott will be crowned with the crown of life. Scripture tells us those who suffer greatly and give up their lives in the cause of Christ will receive the crown of life. King Jesus is going to put that crown on Jim's head. I seriously doubt on that day Jim's going to be regretting the choice he made to be obedient and follow, to be extravagantly generous with his life, wasteful, excessive. And I can tell you, if you know anything about Elizabeth Elliot, who has written numerous books and, and has become a giant in the faith, that she doesn't regret it either. See, I think Paul is closing out this chapter by saying, Jesus died and rose again. You're going to die. But gloriously, you're going to rise again. You have the opportunity here and now between the two advents, between the two comings, to invest your life and not waste it. To live it with purpose. To live it as somebody who's genuinely awake to the reality of the dying and the coming, of the age that is passing and the age that is dawning in, not living under the delusion and the drunkenness as if this is the world that mattered, as if getting clothed with temporary glory were, 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 were what really mattered as opposed to being clothed with the eternal glory of Christ. Getting temporary pleasures is more important than, than becoming rich in grace and in love. Don't waste your life. All right, I quoted C.S. Lewis to open the sermon. I want to I close with the broader quote. This is from Mere Christianity, uh, and this is the broader passage that um, that quote in your bulletin came from. Lewis said this, um, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do it doesn't mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For your work in the Lord is not in vain. Let me close this in word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you so loved us that you gave us your Son. that you chose to love us. And in choosing to love us, you set your will to redeem us and restore us. You purposed 
to pay the price we couldn't pay, to die the death we deserve to die, to settle our debt of cosmic treason, that we might be forgiven, that our guilt might be cleansed, that our shame might be covered, that we might have hope, that death will not have the last word, because Christ, our King, Christ, our hero, killed death that we might live. Lord, allow us to walk in an ever-increasing awareness of this truth. Allow us to walk in the increasing generosity that flows from grace. That we would learn to love people extravagantly that we would learn to, to act in their best interests, to, to love them in ways that are um, beyond self-protective, that, 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 that are abounding. Because, Lord, you have abounded toward us. We simply cannot outgive you. We cannot outpace your grace in love. We, we cannot love people so freely that we are out in front of you. You are always out-loving us. You give us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You equip us for this work. And you tell us that whatever we sow will come back as a rich harvest, both for your glory and for our good. May we be bold in our faith. May we be rooted in your love. And may we be motivated by our hope. Make your name great. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.